Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the D1 Only Podcast. My name is Eduardo Villalpando and I'm your host and we have a very special guest today, Coach Peter Smith. Welcome, Coach. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you got it. Uh, Peter Smith was a Division I men's tennis coach for 32 years, coaching schools like Long Beach State, Fresno State, Pepperdine, and the University of Southern California. As a player, Peter played for the Long Beach State men's tennis team and even competed in the U.S. Open and Wimbledon Championships, while as a coach, he was the youngest Division I men's tennis head coach at age 23, won five NCAA championships, and was named twice ITA Coach of the Year. He's also the current coach of Stevie Johnson and Sam Quarry. Coach Smith, of course, has many more accolades, but it will take too much time from the podcast. So just congrats on a great career so far. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's really just something I love. And, you know, at a very young age, I, I saw that you know, I loved helping people and figured out very quickly that tennis was the best way for me to help people. So it's been just a, a career of just trying to help Uh, improve people yeah tennis. yeah that actually leads me to my first question um you were of course a really good player but when did coaching start being something you were really passionate about because i understand that while you were doing your bachelor's degree at long beach state you were also the coach for the team so your pa your passion for coaching has been since an early age as you imagine well you know i was kind of the guy on the team that uh <coughs> was a coach's nightmare uh <laughs> I was getting into trouble, you know, I can't even, my, my own children don't know the stories that I used to pull. Um, so I guess the best one was uh, we were supposed to be in at night and we went out and I not only went out, I sent my coach a, a pizza at one in the morning to his hotel room, um, which he actually found pretty funny the next day. Uh, but yeah, you know, I was doing crazy stuff like that. So when I knew somebody was going to try something, uh, I was usually one step ahead of them because I had already done it. But, uh, you know, I, I incredibly played four years and then for some reason didn't graduate. I mean, I can't believe my parents let me leave school without graduating, which is pretty ridiculous. So I played for a year. And I was, like, doing okay. I played U.S. Open in Wimbledon, but I played the Quali, so let's be real. I was, like, 350 in the world, which I guess some people might consider good or successful. But, you know, my dad was kind of like, eh, you know. And Michael Chang grew up down the street from us, so he was kind of like the kid growing up down the street because he was six or seven years younger than me. And he played me. He was six years old and beat me pretty soundly and when you know the little kid down the street beats you you basically look at yourself in the mirror and say okay I'm not good enough time to go you know get my degree a little that I know he'd win the French Open the next year and <laughs> went around at the US Open that year obviously Michael was extremely special and obviously I was destined to be a coach uh, but So I went back to school, and I probably would have started playing again. I, I had no idea what I was going to do. I knew I needed 21 units to graduate, and I didn't have any points coming off, and I had no plans. And my coach, who coached me, 
Larry Easley brought me in the office one day and he said, hey, I'm going to quit tomorrow and I'm going to tell them they should hire you, uh, which was just like so shocking. It was beyond belief. And even more shocking, they said, okay, and they gave me the job. So I don't know what they were thinking. It was their first step in de-emphasizing the program, I think, because four years later they dropped it. Uh, but so, yeah, I was literally uh, – you know, a fifth-year guy uh, taking 21 units and the coach of the team, which had been number two in the country the year before. So that's not something that would happen in today's world. Yeah, I don't know if you can also, like, expand a little bit on that, on how you balance being a coach and also doing your bachelor's degree because of course everyone now talks about how being a student athlete is hard because you have you have to go to the gym you have to go to class and everything but you were also you were doing literally going to school and then coaching the team yeah i mean 21 units uh, people seven classes And they all were upper division, and it was. I got my best grades. I finally figured out, like, oh, you should enjoy school. Oh, you should study before class instead of like ditching class or doing stupid stuff um, like I did when I was younger. Um, but yeah, I got all A's and B's. I, I remember having tons of time. I obviously was not, um, you know, doing individual workouts in the morning, but. I was still a really good player, um, and so I had the respect of the team. But my, I, I, I was coaching six former teammates. So six of the guys on the team were my teammates, and they're like, I said, all right, here's the first two rules. You can't call me Peter anymore. You got to call me coach. And they all looked at me and go, nope, not going to do that. And I'm like, all right, rule number two, I'm not going to go out on Friday night with you guys anymore. And they're like, uh, you're boring, you suck. <laughs> But we came up with a with a, a tag. I said, okay, you, you can't call me Peter. They said, well, we're not calling you coach. And I said, how about a nickname? And they're like, great. And so they called me Co. That was my nickname. <laughs> And still some of those players, when they see me, they call me Co. <laughs> okay. And so it was It was a really nice thing. And it, it was actually an amazing year looking back on it. I, I discovered very, very quickly how much I loved coaching. You know, I never really coached, but, you know, when you, you, when you could help somebody overcome the obstacles that they see in front of them, it was so rewarding to me. Uh, I Like week number two, I was like, oh, wow, this is incredible. I'm going to do this for a very long time. Uh, I loved it right away. And coaching for me was about helping people, was about building things, building facilities, and, you know, you know, fundraising, things like that. All that stuff was very rewarding. And, and it was also about being competitive. And so I could kind of get all, all the things I needed out of life out Uh, very, very easily and, and quickly. Yeah, plus I imagine that must have been like a huge experience for you because you were 23 years old at the time and you were already in charge of a, of a good Division One tennis program. And nowadays you see guys that 
were really good players, but have to start like as an assistant coach in Division Three and then work their their way up from there. But the fact that you got yeah, thrown into yeah, the fire like was, straight away that was crazy. Crazy. It was just a different time. I mean, I actually really paid the price for never being the assistant and being able to learn from somebody. But you know, you learn a lot when you're in charge. And you know, the team was top 20 in the country and. It was uh, just a real, but I mean, I worked seven days a week. I, I just absolutely loved it. I, I couldn't have loved it anymore. And that's how I felt for, for the majority of my career. Yeah, for sure. And as I previously said, you have coached four different Division One programs, Long Beach State, Fresno State, Pepperdine, and USC. How would you describe each stage of your coaching career? Like, for example, I do imagine that Long Beach was about finding your coaching style, moving to Fresno and having a big challenge moving from Long Beach State to Fresno. So I don't know if you care to explain a little bit about how were your stages at each college that you went? Yeah, I mean, probably didn't find my coaching style till till I went to Fresno. I mean, Long Beach was like, you just it was so hard to plan because I just, in a lot of ways, just didn't know what I was doing. I, I think I did an okay job, and, you know, I'm still close with my former team members, you know, pretty close. I mean, you know, I went out to dinner with one of them a couple months ago. I'm coaching another one of their sons, and, you know, I, I have a real affection for all of them, and I believe it's shared, and, you know, I think... That's how I always, I mean, it shaped my career because, you know, I had assistants, but they were volunteers, you know, but the guys on the team were literally my friends. So I always looked to the team for advice. And I, I think I did that my whole career, uh, listening to my team members. I always felt like I did a very good job of that. I always felt like I was a player's coach. Um, and then when I went to Fresno, it was more about more pressure, more expectation, even though it was, you know, what we would consider Fresno State. But there was a lot of tension, attention in the town. You were in the newspaper. We had a lot of fans at matches. And so there it was more finding your style and finding – who you were, um, but, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Fresno State was the most exciting place I coached, uh, you know, being on TV and being on the, you know, front page of the sports section. Obviously, it was a smaller town, and that's never going to happen in Los Angeles, but, um, you know, it's just, just a very, very exciting time for my wife and I. We had our kids, and You know, we, we were just the two of us up there just kind of against the world. And I just worked like a dog um, and, and and just just enjoyed that. And then going to Pepperdine was more about like, okay, now you're taking over this team that has, has, a, has kind of a tradition and, you know, even bigger expectations. And, you know, but it was more like kind of coaching at Long Beach because – Malibu is kind of a quiet little town and you, you didn't get much attention at Pepperdine 
compared to Fresno State and and then going to USC going to USC was like you know okay I coached high school my whole life and now I feel like I'm in the major leagues <laughs> there was such a difference in terms of expectations and I wasn't quite prepared for that and you know there's so much pressure to succeed at USC and you feel like this bus is kind of chasing you down and the bus is just filled with pressure and you know that's not really off your shoulders until you win a national championship but you know to have some of the success we we all had at, at USC was extremely gratifying yeah so sound like good times as you imagine um so yeah. of course you had You have run some pretty big programs, as previously said. But aside from the level of tennis, what other things do coaches look at when recruiting a player? Or, well, at least yourself. Well, I think, you know, I think you make a lot of mistakes early on. Like when I went to USC, all I wanted was the best player, the best player. Give me the best player. And you're like, you know, you think you can solve any problem any Rubik's Cube, any issue, you can solve it. I'm that good, I'll talk this. But, you know, I my first couple recruiting classes, I, I kind of recruited the wrong guys. You know, I can't blame it on them. You know, at the end of the day, the, the head coach takes responsibility. But, you know, it was, it was more or less how I was recruiting them. You know, I, I had to do a better job about talking about, you know, what's important. And the only thing that's important to a college program is the team. And if guys aren't coming there to play for the team, that's the only thing that matters. And so you're recruiting some of the best juniors in the world at USC, and they come to the team, and I think this is true for almost every any program, because I remember... You know, we had a, <clears throat> the number five guy in the country went to Fresno State, and he was number seven on our team, Kelly Gullett. And Kelly's a great guy and, and still a very good friend. But I used to tease Kelly that he was five in the country in juniors, but seven in Fresno <laughs> uh, because he didn't make the starting lineup. And I, I think that's just a huge shock to some of these kids is like to have this much success in the juniors. And then you come and, you know, you you still have to be building, building, and getting better uh, because there's a lot of kids they never heard of that are are beating them. And so finding kids that still really like tennis, finding kids with that character and grit that you need, and, you know, just finding kids that are still rising. And sometimes you get a lot of kids that, I mean, juniors can be a grind, and, you know, I think their goal for a lot of them is just to get on a major college team. And when they get on a major college team, they don't really realize like, okay, my work's just starting here. You know, there's nothing guaranteed. And, and it's actually in some ways, one of the first times they really have to prove themselves, not only to the coaches, but to their teammates. And, and that's a different kind of pressure. So finding those kids where tennis They just still have this real passion for the game, um, and that's that. That can be really tricky. Yeah, 
Uh, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here, but do you think being ranked high in the ITF junior rankings is like overrated? Like, because there's a lot, of, I've seen like a lot of players that have never left the Southern California section as a juniors, because of course it's one of the most competitive regions like in the entire country. And they are like really good players, but they have never tried themselves playing like the ITF junior circuit or anything like that. So I don't know if you think that being ranked that high in the world in juniors doesn't necessarily mean you can come in and make an impact in the lineup or even play in the lineup in a, in a college well, I think I think in any kind of ranking system, there's ways you can hide. And I think if you play ITFs and you're going to Asia and Africa and places where it's easier to get points, <clears throat> you can have an inflated ranking. Um, I was never a big ITF person. Um, I just felt like a lot of the kids that played ITFs were a little burnt out and were only interested in being professionals. I was more interested in the kids that had USDA rankings and kind of played against each other and more of a, a, a person that liked kids that went to, you know, a normal high school uh of course you're general and you're generalizing terribly here because there's exceptions to every rule yeah but I, i i wanted i wanted more of a kid that had a good southern cal ranking you know that proved week in week out that they could win in the toughest section in the country because southern cal is the deepest and the toughest section and so I, I really recruited the Southern Cal kids first, and I thought that that was really important uh, to have Southern Cal kids at USC. You know, I, I tried to do it at Fresno and and Pepperdine too, but you know, you weren't as successful there, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to go to USC so I could get the best Southern Cal kids, the best Americans, and that was very important to me to not just have a team full of foreigners. Um, having said that, some of my favorite players were internationals. So, you know, it's, it's creating that mix of maybe two to three international students and, and the rest mostly Southern Cal kids. Um, <clears throat> finding that balance is, is very important. Yeah, for sure. And I actually went to the Wild Tennis Academy as a, when I was back in high school. And it's crazy just like the amount of level there is like in the southern california section because like you have all these level threes level fours level twos like designated opens men's open pre-qualies all these all these amazing tournaments and there's people that you never heard of before but they're like really really good players oh it's crazy the the uh the the level here and the depth here is is so impressive uh you know all these kids And really, sometimes if you want to play, you know, uh, uh, a you know a men's open tournament, man. I mean, up until I was very, you know, even into my 40s, I was playing men's open tournaments and and having success and and playing juniors and you know I, <laughs> I have some great stories, you know, playing kids that you know that that were 
turned out to be really good players, and I caught them when they were a little younger and were able to, you know, get on top of them a little bit. But, you know, <laughs> the, the depth here in Southern Cal is just crazy good. Yeah, I remember those tournaments like Northridge, which actually I think Coulter won a couple of years ago, so shout out to him. Uh, Lost Cab, of course, these men's opens like La Habra, Top Gun, like, damn it, the level is just crazy. But. Uh, how can coaches tell when a player has a big room for improvement and despite not being rated high in juniors, they can still come in and help the team and fight for a spot? Like, is there a secret for detecting those late bloomers? Well, like, how many tournaments are they playing? Um, let's you know, say, they, yeah, let's let's say they're not playing that many tournaments a year. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's a, that's kind of a, an indicator, you know, what are they doing in back draws? Um, you know, what, what are their coaches saying about them? Really? What are they saying? You know, uh, it's very hard to say because like on an interview, everybody puts their best foot forward, Yeah. you know, especially when you're talking to the USC coach, because, you know, everybody wants to be recruited and go to that school. And so it's hard to find the, the kids that still have that real fire are in them, that real love of the game. Uh, you know, if, if you come to USC and you don't want to play professional tennis after USC, it's a real problem. You know, you gotta, you have to have that drive that USC is not making it. USC is just a stopping ground on the way. And, you know, not everyone's going to be a successful pro. Oh, but you got to have that passion and that love of the game to to really want to try and play and be a pro, and that's that's who you want as a tennis player because those guys will run down, run through walls, you know, for you that because they they want to be great at their their craft, at their sport. Okay, okay, yeah, that's good. And from your experience as a 32-year college coach, what do you think is the thing that players struggle the most with, not only when they come in as freshmen, but just in their time at the university? Well, first is their physicality. You know, whenever I signed a kid, I, I really told them all to go get a physical trainer. Um, what, what happens, you know, I think two things that are underrated are that they don't understand because they've never been in a locker room. You know, you come into a locker room and the seniors control the locker room and you got to be able to handle that. And tennis players, you know, a lot of the kids that come to SC have always been number one. So they're not used to being teased or, you know, things like that, which is going to happen in any, any, you know, in, Kids are kids. I don't think they need anything by it, but they're, you know, I'm going to tease some people. And and the other thing is the weight room. You know, everyone gets in the weight room and, you know, the tennis players are done. They're working out next to the track athletes and the football athletes and the baseball players. And, you know, it's a incredibly macho environment. And they look at tennis players, the strength coaches, as a who are these sissy tennis players. And so the guys start trying to lift too much and do too much, and they end up getting injured. And that is something you really try hard to fight against 
as the coach, but you know, you can't be there for every one of them and select their weights for them. You know, they try and lift too hard and they end up hurting themselves, which is, you know, I'm not a big fan of weights. I never wanted guys to actually lift weights. I used to tell all the strength coaches like, Hey, you can get them strong without lifting weights. There's a million different ways to get them strong. And so, you know, I would push the strength coaches to, to attack it from that angle because I had too many guys like trying to, you know, curl, you know, 50 pound dumbbells when they should be curling 20 pounds mm-hmm. or, or, or something just as a, as a dumb example. Um, so, you know, that, and just, you know, being held to a certain standard by their teammates and, you know, being, being ready to answer to the captains, which can be hard. And then looking at the coach as someone who's evaluating you all the time. When you're the coach, you know, you have 10 to 12 players on the team. You have to evaluate them and that can change year to year. And, you know, lots of things can happen over, you know, that freshman year or even all four years. So you have to be able to be ready for that and, you know, guys have a tough time with that. Uh, but having said that, you know, you're you're trying to make every player as great as they can be, and and really not great tennis players. I mean, I always said if I was just a tennis coach, it would be pretty boring. You know, my biggest interest was trying to help them become better people. Uh, and I tried very hard to equate tennis to making them better people off the court. Uh, that was very important for me. That you know, I always said to him, like, you, hopefully you'll never, you won't know the impact I have had on you until ten, fifteen years down the road. Um, that was important that I had that kind of impact on them. Yeah, and so you would say players or just student athletes in general from your experience they struggle more from the athletics aspect of it than the academics aspect yeah i mean i think most of the tennis players that i had were all really good students i mean i think it's a shock to them again if they were kind of homeschooled how busy their day is that they don't have that much time but You know, at a school like USC, there's so many resources for them if they use the resources. But most most of the kids that I recruited were good student-athletes and, and took schooling pretty seriously. You have to be a, a pretty good student to get into USC to begin with. Um, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, 99% of the athletes I coached Um, graduated from USC. I mean, that's a that's something you're very proud of. But I, I think that's more in their DNA from their families. They come from very successful families that you know want that. I mean, I had so many kids from so many wonderfully great families, uh, and but that expectation was on them. And you know, we always had one of the higher team GPAs and, and sure there were struggles and problems but you know they're how they viewed themselves was 
through the lens of a tennis player a lot of times and not the lens of a you know a student unfortunately yeah you know you would but that's that's just how it is they're they were tennis players first and, and students second yeah but a lot of them athlete the student instead of a student athlete right <laughs> Yeah, a lot of them were very successful as at balancing both, and I was always very proud of them for that. Yeah, um, I actually asked this question to your son Tanner when he was on the podcast, and he told me his experience as a player. So I would like to know yours as a coach, and it's about just the party scene, the party environment in college. Can coaches tell when players go out? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's a that's a real problem. I mean, I had a real problem on my teams my third fourth seasons at USC I mean there was a real problem on the team and you know I had recruited some of the wrong student athletes and a lot of guys paid the price for it and had to drop out of school or quit the team or you know I was allowing the guys to join a fraternity which was a mistake a big mistake and they just couldn't handle it And, uh, you know, they were partying too much and they were around the wrong kids. And I just started running them every morning. And I, I just said, hey, you guys want to party? That's fine. You can puke in the morning when you run. <laughs> and, and we, I, I, you know, it wasn't too hard to realize that the biggest party nights were Tuesday and Thursday nights. <laughs> so we ran Wednesday and Friday mornings. And there was many a morning that they smelled like alcohol. <laughs> and uh, and we we beat it out of them, but you know the better teams were interested in celebrations, uh, so they were interested in parting for a reason, yeah, and not parting for any reason. And you know when we had our runs uh, on very successful teams, those guys were not interested in partying, and the the pretenders are a little bit more interested in partying. Yeah, like, like so, coming back from the Ohio after winning the Pac-12 championship. Yeah, I, I would I would say they all should go out and have a good time that night. Yeah, that was a, a successful thing. But then you shut it down and yeah. you don't party again until you win the NCAA's. Yeah, I agree. You with know, that. so that's three weeks later, and I I, I was not you know of course I'm not going to promote that, but I'm also going to understand that, but. You know, if you're, you, you better, you better have an ear to the ground with your teams. And like my most successful teams, you know, the captains and the best players on the team were, were hand in hand with me. They believed in what I believed and we had great communication. And because of that, the whole team revolved around us. You know, you know, the captains I had when we were successful from, you know, Abdullah Magnet, this to Steve Johnson, to, you know, Robert Farah, to Eric Johnson, to, you know, those type of individuals that were really connected with me, then you're able to coach. To Daniel Wynn, to Raymond Sarmiano, you know, just some, some guys that, 
you know, to this day, I'm, I'm very close with. Yeah, and, and, and from your personal experience as a coach, do you try to stay in touch consistently with your players in that aspect? Because there's a lot of distractions in college, so student athletes can lose their heads with drugs, alcohol, etc. Or do you just let them figure it out on their own? No, you're always talking to them. You're always talking to them. Like, I cared for my student athletes. You know, I, I think most coaches care in this way. I mean, you can't do a good job without caring for them. But for me, I always cared more about them as people than as tennis players. And you're always trying to, like, impart your lessons, your wisdom on them. <laughs> If they want, choose to listen or not, they, that can be the hard time is, is finding that time when they want to listen. But you're you're always talking about hey you know this is how you should study hey you know I, I gave girlfriend advice I gave every advice that you know that they were willing to listen some guys don't want to hear it and you can tell pretty easily that they don't want to hear it and so you obviously limit it to those guys but you know you you tried very hard to always connect with them and, and do the right things with them. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, I also want to talk about the family environment, especially for yourself. Of course, you got the opportunity to coach two of your sons, Tanner and Riley, in their time at USC, two really good players. How fun was that? Yeah, you know, it was... Uh, I always said it was 90% pure joy and 10% pure hell. Um, <laughs> you know, there was... You know, having your sons on the team was was just an amazing experience that we will never forget. And uh, but you know, there was also it was complicated, you know, too, because there was jealousies and you know, you know, different things were thought of, and and that was very hard to overcome at times. Uh, um, you know, my. What from what I saw from my perspective, I always thought I was way harder on them than I was on anybody else. But I think that one of the bigger mistakes I I made, and look, you're you're always making mistakes and trying to learn from them. And uh, but I needed to be, I was, I, I didn't like to like really come down on guys in front of other guys. I wanted them to always have that that pride. I didn't. You know, it's not to say I never, you know, yelled at someone in front of the teammates, but I, I didn't think that was a positive way to go about it. And so a lot of my talking to team members was one-on-one, -on -one, so I would do that to the guys, but I, I probably needed to yell at my own sons a little bit more in front of everybody else. But, you know, it was super special, and I think for Riley and uh, Tanner, We'll never forget it, but, you know, for all three of my boys, I've been incredibly connected with each one of them and still am very connected with each one of them on a daily basis. And, you know, I, I you know, just adore being their father. Yeah. And, and did, so, you, did you ever have a back and forth with any of them or did were they really good and aren't just listening? many back and forth we had some back and forth at dinner tonight so. no but I'm, I mean on the court I mean on the court yeah I mean I 
you know, the funny thing is for both of them, their third day of practice at USC, they both got kicked out of practice. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's, it was, we had a lot of back and forth, a lot of back and forth. I mean, you know, they crushed me a few times and I'm sure they felt like I crushed them a couple times and, you know, t- you know, Tanner really wanted to play, be a starter and he never really was a starter and he came down hard on me because of that and that was some very hard times for him. I mean, he never was a starter at USC, but he still qualified for the NCAA tournament and won a round and, you know, he played, you know, he didn't play in a ton of matches. So all of those things were hard, but I was like, I used to tell him it's the tax, you know, it's the family tax you pay. It's the family luxury tax, and that's life. And, you know, Riley, when he was a freshman, he lost one, one match, and I pulled him. And then he got back in and told his mom, if, if, I, lo- if I don't lose, Dad can't pull me. So I'm not losing. And he won, I believe, 14 straight matches. And, you know, so... It's it's it was it, it certainly had its challenges, but it was also you know unforgettable. Yeah, for sure. Did they call you that or coach on the court? They actually called me Co. They called me Co. <laughs> and I, I loved that nickname, and they brought it back. Uh, and to this day, they they call me Co. <laughs> uh, I think I think it's like a. Super cool little nickname, and it reminds me of my first year's coaching. And you know, I mean, of course, you know, it's dad sometimes. Um, they call me coach sometimes, but I think they, I would not allow them to call me dad when we were at school. I, I just thought it was improper. Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, but I, I really tried very hard to love. All of my players, like they were my kids, uh, that was important to me. And I, I really felt like we started to do better as a program and as a team when I loved them harder. And being a father enabled me to, to, to learn how to love them the proper way. Uh, because you learn a lot being a father. Yeah, maybe that's the reason why you were so successful too in college because you actually cared about every single player in the team. So, well, like I said, I think a lot of coaches did that, but you know, I, I had no problem. You know, I I think by the t- time a lot of my seniors became seniors, I was saying I love you to them, and they would say I love you back, which sounds weird. Uh, but I, it was heartfelt, I know, for me, and I think it was heartfelt from them. And, you know, to this day, you know, I still am in contact with a lot of them, and it's it's joyous. I, I mean, I called the player this morning that played for me at Fresno State and told him how special he was to me. And so, you know, I'm, it was certainly not a week that goes by. You know, I also, you know, Talked to Emilio Gomez and Guay 
get killed today. We had a, a great conversation, you know, so, and, and communicated with Roberta Quiroz also. So you're always kind of communicating with them and, you know, I, I hope to be in their lives forever. Yeah, and do you stay like in track of every single player who you coach, like how they're doing? It doesn't like whether it's like the Challenger Tour, the ATP Tour, the Futures. Like, do you stay in track like every week? Oh yeah, I mean the guys. Well, I mean Resultina is a, is a big help there. I mean that's kind of cheating a little bit because you just you just tap in their their name, and so anytime they start a match. I have it when they start a match and when they finish a match, I get the results. So most of the time, whenever they finish a match, Resultina will tell me, and then I'll send them a text like "congratulations" or whatever. And, you know, that's that's my job. You know, but having said that, you know, you try and follow guys on Instagram, and you know, it can't just be about tennis. And you know, you're 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 always trying to to communicate with a lot of them. Um, you know, if you're going through your phone and you find a, a picture, you know, uh, I'd send it to them and, you know, just, I, I do that a lot of times on a, on a weekly basis and you're just checking in. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so this last year you have been coaching Stevie Johnson on some queries. Stevie, of course, who you coached when he was a student at USC. But that's also when your youngest son, Colter, came into USC and joined the team. So he didn't really get to play for you. How was that conversation between you two? And was it hard to accept for him? Like, especially because his two older brothers did get that opportunity of playing for you. Yeah, I think it was a tough conversation for both of us. But it was time to move on. And he understood it. And, you know, I, I felt bad that, you know, But that's life, and, you know, life isn't always rosy. And, you know, I think a year a year ago that, you know, that change happened, and there's a lot of positives in our lives uh, because of that change. And, you know, Coulter, I, I mean, uh, I have this, you know, uh, like I, I wish I could have had maybe a, a little stronger bond with my father, and so that was always very important for me what kind of bond I had with my my kids and you know look they all fell in love with tennis so that's not a coincidence and uh, you know I, I hit with Coulter today for 45 minutes and he was a little sick so he couldn't hit too long but you know just to have that opportunity to be able to just spend that time with them is so precious and so invaluable I I never take it for granted. Um, you know, I said, hey, I got an hour free. 3.30, 4.30, come over. And he came over, and we hit for a bit. And then he hit for like 15 minutes with my next lesson. And, you know, that was super fun. And, you know, during the quarantine, Riley and Coulter have been hitting partners for both Steve and Sam and been really good hitting partners. And, you know, so they... I've spent a lot of time with them on the court. So, you know, I, me not coaching him in college, you know, I, I, it doesn't, I'm still such a part of his life. It's, it's not, it's not close. So. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay. One last question before we get to the final segment of the podcast. How do you think playing college tennis helps a student athletes 
have success in the future? And I'm not only talking about the ones who are pursuing a pro career after, but just in general. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think you're responsible to a group. You know, when you're on a team, if the team culture is good, and I wouldn't say every team I ever coached, my team, my culture was good because, you know, at the end of the day, you only have so much, you know, you can do it as a coach. If the guys don't want to do it, they, you know, they're not going to do it. But you're responsible to captains. You're responsible to sophomores and juniors. You're responsible to this great group of guys, which hopefully you want to impress. So learning to get along in a group situation is invaluable. If you go work in an office, you got to be learn how to get along with a group. And if you're playing on the ATP tour, trust me, you know I've been in enough locker rooms at big tournaments that if you're going to act like an idiot, you you are not going to make it. Uh, it's way harder for the idiots or the people who don't want to get along with people to make it because if you're an outcast and you don't have a lot of friends, it doesn't bode well for you for enjoying your experience. So learning to get along with people is a very valuable skill that you have to have to be successful in life and no matter what you do. And, you know, being a student athlete, you're basically doing two full-time jobs. You know, you're, you're a student and you're an athlete, and both of them require a lot. So learning those time management skills is really important. And look, if you want to do something, I used to always say you can, it's very, not easy, but you can be very successful in two things. And those two things better be school and tennis. And if you want to be a great, you know, boyfriend or a great partier, you know, or this great socialite or, or something else, you're going to fail at both tennis and school. And so you better pick school and tennis because that's what you came for. And most every guy does that. And, you know, I, I really push the guys to do that. Uh, and so it, it just teaches them some incredible life lessons. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Um, okay, this is the last segment of the podcast called the D15. It's five rapid fire questions. You've got to answer them as fast as you can, okay? Sure. I'm gonna put you kind of on the spot here, so just so you know. Um, favorite coaching memory? Winning the first NCAA championship, not not close. Favorite college coach? Oh, uh, golly. You know, uh, Dick Gould, Glenn Bassett, you know, they were just incredible mentors to me. They always took me under their wing. Especially Coach Gould, he was just this amazing personality. Whether you're having a beer with him or I asked him every question and he answered them all. Who do you rather play doubles with, Coulter, Tanner, or Riley? <laughs> well, I won father-son with each one of them. So, you know, if I can play with any of them and they want to play with me, I'm there, so I'm I'm not answering that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love them all the most, and I've won. Uh, I've won with all of them. So, and any of the three, A, B, or C. Other than coaching, what other profession would you like to attempt? 
immediate teacher. Okay. Most listen, yeah. most listen artists at the moment. Most listened artist at the most. You know, uh, I've got Streetcar Symphony in my Pandora. Rob Thomas, and he has just been rocking it lately. He's a little old school, uh, so but he's he's so good. He is so good, and listening to some Tracy Chapman too. That was I love Tracy Chapman in, in college, and she's she's still boy can she sing. <laughs> all right perfect coach that's all i got for you today thank you so much for taking the time 48 minutes of a uh, really quality interview i appreciate you for just keeping 100 with me you have had a lot of experiences and it's nice that you can share them just not only with me but like with the listeners like the junior, whether it's junior players college players or just tennis fans in general so i appreciate it in my life I've just had a dream life and uh, I love impacting people and you know uh, working with Steve and Sam is great but you know I also work with juniors in the afternoon every day you know gave three hours of lessons to juniors today and you know I feel so fortunate that kids want to listen and learn and uh, you know hopefully I have a lot more years left of uh, trying to help people Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, coach. And thanks to all the fans for tuning in to another D1 only episode and see you guys next time. Awesome. Great job.